0: All right, well, it's true. It's 7
1: o'clock. Let's go.
0: It's yeah, 7 okay. o'clock. I think it's oh, 10. Oh, my okay, God. I'm go. so tired. Let's go. Don't you dare fall
1: asleep. It's your last one. You got to make it
0: good. Yeah. Come on. All right. <clears throat> oh, this is sad. Okay. I'm ready. Hi. Welcome to Outrageous, our biweekly podcast. <laughs> I can't even. Okay.
1: Oh, Lord. I'm
0: sorry. Hold I'm
1: trying. trying. Why are you so basic?
0: <gasps> How? <laughs> Dare you!
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hi, welcome to Our Rageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my two very best friends, Trisha in LA, hello, and Jason in DC what's up
3: hi guys <laughs> how you been how's it going oh it's how are you you were you you're back from an exciting fun in the sun i am back from
0: an exciting fun in the sun vacation <laughs> uh i went to curacao uh in the caribbean no one seems to know where it is yeah, and it was a lot to of ask. fun
2: where exactly, I, that?
0: Where exactly uh, is it it's in the it's in the dutch caribbean so it's like down near venezuela
3: so they kind of. I knew. Okay. I knew where it was. I just didn't know how to pronounce it.
0: Curacao. Can you see the evidence it was, of the Dutch? Uh, it was a, oh yeah. Oh yeah. First of all, everyone's speaking Dutch all the time. They speak Dutch, or there's like a Dutch Creole that gets spoken there, and everyone also everyone speaks English. I don't think I encountered anyone who didn't speak English when I was there. It was a nice island. It was beautiful, and just like Aruba, which I went to. It was uh, it's much drier than you'd think for an island surrounded by water. But it was good. This is the first time I left the country since my, my fateful Brazil trip. Went way better. No uh, hallucinations. No <laughs> no fever dreams. No diarrhea and projectile vomiting at the same time. Wow, that's uh, already a
2: plus.
0: Yeah, already it was a plus. Sat on the beach, and I just had a really. Great, relaxing time before returning to snowy-ass New York. Can I, can I just say, what, what's your favorite airline to fly? I think I already know your answer, but what's the best airline to fly, would you say? Jason, what would you say?
3: How, how, how long was that flight? It depends on length of flight.
0: <laughs> five <laughs> hours. <laughs> it's five hours to curacao from here.
3: I mean, the thing is, domestic, I'm definitely a Southwest. Uh, I'm I knew a, it. I'm a loyalist. I'm a Southwest loyalist. Um, but, you know, if you're going international, five hours is tough because it's kind of like right in the middle. I'd probably still go with Southwest, and I don't think they fly there. But, I mean, international, I I had a really good experience on the Fitanza. Trisha, what would you say?
1: 100% Virgin America all the way. If Virgin America could just go everywhere in the U.S., I'd be very happy.
3: Um, I've never flown Virgin America, ever. I
1: don't, I don't understand how you're living. Um <laughs> i have not. I, I've, you know, I found, I've flown Southwest, and... Let me just say I've flown Southwest, and and so uh, <laughs> wait. You didn't like Southwest? No, I don't like Southwest. I don't like that whole thing about like no seating. I'm like, come on, that's what are we on a bus? <laughs> I <I'm> like a <laughs> <seating>. primitives. <laughs> <laughs>
3: You know See funny? that? You're the same one that just wants to keep the electoral college. You just don't like democracy. Just
2: a minute.
1: Because everybody runs in and you end up with a crappy seat. No. If, I, I like the idea of first first bought, first First chosen, not waiting in line, and then suddenly rushing on a plane. Group A, group C, B, C, D. No, uh, I don't even know how they decide that order. Yeah, uh, no, but and then I think international. I've enjoyed, um, I've enjoyed British Airways, uh, Virgin Atlantic really? used to be one of my faves, but I haven't haven't done it in a long time, so I don't know.
0: Why do you ask? Well, one, I knew exactly what both of you were going to say before you said it, right? Well, because you- those. That you notice, well, one, I know you, but also, you, those are the two best airlines right now. Mm. That's it. Southwest prices are great, and I, I know you don't like the public bus feel, but <laughs> <laughs> no more. Can we get them a sponsor. Sadly, I, don't, I know, I know. We're just torpedoing <laughs> our sponsorship. We, we, I flew JetBlue. Oh yeah, and, that's a nice one too. And we, we left in Cur. We were supposed to leave Curacao at three, mm-hmm. and. I heard it was raining in New York that morning, and In the back of my head, I was like, "Here we go, here we go," and sure enough, every half hour they pushed back the departure time forty minutes. Uh, so, brutal, yeah. brutal. Yeah. So, but I mean, but I expected it because it was JetBlue. I mean, I wasn't flying Virgin or Southwest. I guess the JetBlue pilots are just like rain. We're scared, <laughs> and they just don't
2: refuse to take
0: off. Great vacation. Um, you all should
1: take what was the, vac- the worst thing.
0: Was the worst the, worst, the worst thing about the vacation.
1: Listen, because everything every you're going on vacation, and it was like, oh, my God, that was great. That must have been awesome. So I'm like asking the opposite. What's the worst thing that happened on that vacation?
0: The worst thing that happened on the vacation. When you vacation, you have to make sure that people traveling with you are going for the same reasons you are. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's true
0: you have to because when there when there's a mismatch of expectations and what to expect from the environment it can be extremely frustrating and that's all I'm going to say in this space but <laughs>
1: i think yeah you know i had similar i had a similar thing i traveled with a girlfriend a couple years ago and The thing is that I'm one of those leisure travelers, so I like to get up. I like to sort of stroll around. I mean, I like to pick maybe one or two things that I'm going to do, but I just really want to feel like I'm enjoying the space. I am not one of those, let's check box person. Yeah. That was who I was traveling with. That is not a compatible match.
0: And I I am not a very, (laughs) like when I'm traveling, I'm not exceedingly critical of my experience, like in the moment, because it's it's a really expensive way to complain your way yeah. through an experience.
2: <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like,
0: minute by minute. But Trisha and I uh, went on a trip once with someone that we know, and we discovered that you just can't travel with everyone. It doesn't matter how much you love them. Like, no, you yeah. just That's can't travel true. with everybody. That's
3: absolutely true.
0: Because sometimes it just doesn't matter what your relationship is like any other way. It yeah. can just be really touch and go, and you feel like you're going to rip somebody's face off. <laughs> And you're like, why is this working? We're like best friends,
3: but this is not working. Uh. Yeah, travel compatibility is, is a different animal from, you know, regular compatibility.
0: And it takes you a long time to figure that out because yeah. like, you get out of college and you're like, we're friends. We can do everything. It took me a long time to realize it's just not a good scene. You know what
3: I mean? I'll tell you something comparable to that is putting together furniture. Real, well, what? Yeah,
1: stress, well is it like any stressful activity which is sort of yeah strange. i think
3: that's what it is the stress brings out the neuroses in a way yeah. that, <laughs> that is really sharp yeah and you know there are people that your two different sharp neuroses can get along okay but then there are people that like it's just not gonna work <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> that's a make or break for a relationship so let me ask you guys a question so how far into a relationship should you be before you go on a vacation or travel together since One that. year. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Shouldn't you,
1: should you find that out sooner or Yeah, or later I, that's though? right. I
3: disagree. I say, do it right away. <laughs> I don't... I,
1: like, or does, it, so or does your like, tolerance increase the more you love them? <laughs> on, like, the third date, you're like,
0: let's go to Palm Springs? Like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean right away, Jason? <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. I but I just... Especially the difference was you date women. Yeah, good luck telling a woman on the second date. Do you want to go on vacation <laughs> with me? Oh Shit, <laughs> she's gonna be—you're done. You can't break up with her then, ever. Serial killers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like I'm dating a
0: serial killer. He wants. I like. That, I like that's where you go, Trisha. That's but where I, I went. Sorry. Most. I think. I think most women would be like, "Oh my god, this is the one." They call oh, their no. mom. They'd be like, yeah. "I'm getting married." Like you're done, Jason. <laughs>
3: Yeah, no, it's true. That's that's a great point. That's a great point. I, I love I that said... that is where I went, though. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, you watch a lot of the ID channel. <laughs> oh, we're back to that. Oh, my God, Tricia. You're polluting your mind.
1: I really am. <laughs> no,
0: I think you should wait. I think you wait. Okay. Like, if you're in a relationship for, like, as you near a year, I think then you take the trip together. Because by then you know each other and, like, every little tiny thing isn't – going to bother you like you're you're through the peccadillo stage right you know what i mean so like you're not going to be surprised by their behavior really it's just going to be like a refinement of everything that you've already encountered if you go too early like jason said it's like it's a stressful situation and whatever they're going to present is going to be new to you in a foreign land
3: (laughs) so it's (laughs) it's not ideal
1: you can't jump (laughs) ship midway through gotta go Yeah.
3: Uh, yeah so I remember I once traveling with a friend in Egypt. It's amazing, but it, it's—I mean, for me, and I, I've heard from others—very stressful place mm-hmm. to travel at times. And um, I remember she kept saying, "You're gonna, you're gonna leave me behind, aren't you?" And it, like, oh, and oh my you know, God, what? <laughs> no, and I love this person dearly. I would never do that, but I mean, it just showed we were both feeling the yeah. challenges. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I like how she believed you were going to leave her in Egypt.
2: <laughs> I know.
0: You're like, this relationship
2: isn't working. We're I mean, like LA. <laughs> I'm out of here. And you're going to stay here.
3: Bye, girl. Here, stay at the, the uh, you know, the tomb of the kings. Go ahead. And
0: okay, can I just, can I just, can I just blow up Jason's spot? for one second oh, wow. Richard, oh, no.
3: Oh, no. What's do this? you
1: remember when
3: without the ID that girl yes <laughs> oh wait everyone oh, let's no tell a story no names no names
0: I don't no remember names. the name anyway but exactly. Jason came to New York and he brought this girl he was dating at the time long time ago
3: everyone long, very really long very, ago. very
0: long we were all very young
3: we were before the motherfuckers were even a thought yeah, a thought, please, yeah. before
0: any of that like and we went out on the town. We went to some club in Chelsea. I don't remember which one it was. And two this, eyes. Was it? Was it two eyes? Yeah, oh my god! god. <laughs> Wait to, to date us right now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> that's how long ago this was. Anyway, this chick that Jason was dating, she left the house. She didn't bring her ID. She didn't bring her purse. She didn't. She didn't bring anything. And <laughs> we were like, "What if?" God, and she, I was like, "What?" What's your plan? <laughs> and she's like, well, Jason's here, so everything's going to be okay. I was like, you don't know Jason. You just you just started dating. And what if you get separated? I, I don't know. It was bizarre.
3: I think we, we discovered that because she couldn't
1: present her ID to get in the club.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, that's what happened. That is what happened. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember, yeah, remember a... us. Your, your looks, the looks on your faces. It's like, well. This we is clearly still. a joke. We, like, <laughs> you...
0: we were with another friend who refused to let it go. She kept interrogating that woman. <laughs> like so walk me through it where's your id why didn't you bring it
1: (laughs) like we were in south africa and you need to present your id in your (laughs) dark borders i mean that's kind of how but you know what it it, there is a kind of idea that like your id is sort of like your pass. you know what i mean but also most importantly you're going clubbing (laughs) so
2: it's the only
3: thing that gets you in yeah exactly that's your access. it's over nightlife in new york
0: my dad once told me, "I am too black to not be carrying my ID everywhere."
2: End yeah, of story. Or
1: just you know what it is? It's like when it's like when you're growing up and your parents say, "Make sure you leave the house with clean underwear." For me, I never the got ID. That. Yeah, I the didn't ID, I've
3: heard that, but yeah,
1: yeah, the ID thing is kind of like if something happens to you, it's the only way someone can remotely identify you. Nobody knows who the hell you are.
3: You know, my parents. The th- the issue is cash, and I mean to this day.
1: Oh, they would hate I, me. I, I don't I, have it on I me. Took,
3: my parents, my whole life, it's like you carry cash. And just this past summer, I mean, look, I'm 41 years old. I bring <laughs> my kids up to the Jersey Shore. My parents, you know, they rent a house with my other relatives. And I mentioned that I had like, you know, 10 or 20 bucks. They were horrified. What if, what if the car breaks down? What if, like, and by the way, I mean, I'm going to jump for a second. I had to rent a car the other day. Avis doesn't take cash anymore. I couldn't no give one them cash. cash anymore. Oh, yeah. So, but my parents were actually paying gold doubloons. I think they want to make sure you're not a terrorist. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about no, that. Could
0: you imagine walking into the car rental place and just open up the free case and be like, <laughs> no, this
3: <laughs> no, no, but like, no, so here's what happened. So, by the way, like, I mean, hello, I didn't CIA. Know, here's what happened. I got, you know, I got in a car accident this week. Um, everyone's fine, but my car is not. And so I had to rent a car like out of nowhere. So I, I go up to a rental place, and we're going through it all. We, you know, tell them what we want. You know, do you want insurance? Blah blah blah. And then she's like, "Okay, give me your card." So I give her the card. She swipes it. Debit card? I said yes. She said, "We don't. We can't take debit unless you give us 24 hours notice." So I said, well, I, "My car just. My card just got. You know, smashed. Like I need a car." She's like, "I'm sorry." I was like, "Okay, well, just give me the debit card. I'll take it to the ATM. I'll get cash, and I'll pay you cash. We don't take cash." And I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm trying to give you my money. You're refusing to take it.
1: I think that's what it is. I think there's a whole tracing thing. Like, you know, they they have no way of knowing exactly who, where, what. I mean, I think that's part of the challenge. You don't, you don't
0: need cash anymore. All you need is your cell phone. If you have your cell phone, you can make all sorts of magic happen. Cash, listen up, muggers of America. I take out cash of the bank on Friday. It's gone by Monday. I deal <laughs> until the next Friday. So, so basically, uh, if you want to rob him, yeah, catch you him have on a Saturday. Short, you have a short window. I'll hand over my wallet. There's nothing in there you can use. So, <laughs> so guys, um, do you guys want to like talk about topics or something? Sure. Let's do a topic. Let's do it. Let's do a topic. Why don't we do a
1: topic?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm just <laughs> casually
1: laying on my bed. So uh
0: let's you guys know I love to talk about religion. Mm-hmm. right? Because I'm such a religious.
3: Yeah, you're so religious.
0: I'm yeah. so religious. So uh, in thinking about religion and African Americans, church has long been an organizing agent for African Americans. The civil rights movement was supported and advanced by Black religious organizations uh, all over the country. But now, as we step into this new world, does the central place that religion inhabits make sense for the Black community anymore? I mean, with voting rights, health care, Education are all in the news. These are all topics that are going to disproportionately affect black people. Can black Americans still rely on the church to advance progressive cause causes, or is it holding us back? What do you think?
1: You know, when this topic kind of came up though, I, I mean, it, it, it's framed sort of as an African American element, right? However, I think what led, this discussion initially was this notion of kind of like civil rights action right so it obviously it comes out of an african-american tradition but it it could probably expand it as well so it's not as if it's um it limits you because many people who engaged in the civil rights movement came at it from a sort of spiritual and religious perspective right lots of priests were participants in it you know all of those kinds of um traditions so i've just been i've been thinking about sort of what are sort of the new civil rights issues and the emergence of black lives matter. And I, I, I just have the feeling that, um, the the church, the black church has, is, is now a space for respectability politics and maybe it always was, but I just, I don't know if respectability politics has, um, has a part to play in where we are going to go moving forward, particularly if we're going to try to like um, create a branch or a bridge to um, LGBTQ issues where the church really doesn't have a, a, I think a really good ground to stand on with that. So I can't imagine the the church being the space that's going to lead us anymore. I can't, I just don't see it. And I've been really thinking about this because um, you know, it's rec- it was recently MLK Day and, you know, I-, I don't know. I've I've really been struggling with it. I've really been thinking about it cuz I I don't I don't feel inspired by any sort of church leadership or at least the ones that I see.
0: Now so you can say something, Jason. Okay. Yeah. All right. All yeah. right. Now you
3: can throw it in. No, it's uh it, it it makes sense I should be relegated to the back of the bus. It's just <laughs> It's affirmative action. You (laughs) affirmatively speak first. Deaffirmative action. We need to deaffirm all the white people. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. No, I'm I'm with you. Um, I'm fine with being deaffirmed. No, I I struggle with this. I I mean, I think there are two issues that obviously are very overlapping that we're touching on. One is the fact that there is not right now any central institution, religious or otherwise – that seems to be the vehicle for organizing. Now that institution, as you said, Chris, was, I think, in large part, the church in fifties, sixties, well, and well before the Um, fifties. And now there just isn't one. And I think, you know, it's interesting what you're saying, Tricia, like you don't see the church being the vehicle for that in the future. Then the question becomes, you know, what is, and I, you know, I feel like we, We've had many discussions about you know, how helpful it would be if people organized. The thing about church in the past is that that was, A, the place a, the place where a lot of people congregated on a regular basis, and B, a place where people felt comfortable pooling their money. I mean, I don't mean to say it in a crass way because people give yeah. tithes and it means a lot to them, but... You know, I I've had some organizing training. You know, you, a movement is organize people and organize money around a message, um, and the church is is really the quintessential place to do that. The people are there, and their money is there, um, and I think today, um, I, you know, I I'd love to see like a full scale analysis of this, but it just seems like the church landscape is so different. First of all, I think there seems to be a lot more class separation. Um, in church and so you know we have a, a black middle class and i think in many cases at least my own observation is members of the black middle class don't go to the same church as members of the working class and poor and while there are certainly issues in common um, among black people regardless of class um, the 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 way in which those issues are approached it seems to me very different so i'm just talking in circles because I, I don't know what the answer is here but it, it sure would be helpful not only for african-americans but for lots of communities to have a central vehicle for organizing that once was the church I, and i i think what you said makes sense Tricia. the church it's hard to see that having that role again but we sure need something to play that role
1: what do you go ahead chris I was about to ask. um no you go ahead i was wondering um what do you think is the i mean obviously there are lots of um, kind of philosophical ideas around where the church stands on certain issues, but I'm wondering if this is a part of um, urbanization, deseg—I mean, desegregation. All of those. I mean, is it because we're just not living amongst each other anymore? Is that is that is that why the church is potentially not a gathering space? Well, communities aren't segregated like they used to be. Or I mean, they're. I mean, if you look at some of the literature, I hear that people are self-segregating, but. There is still the sense that in urban settings, there is um, more desegregation than not, right?
3: Well, uh, so this is a really interesting question. I can speak to my experience in Baltimore. Part of what what I do, um, I spend a good deal of time with with a group of faith leaders, with African-American Protestant pastors. And what's interesting, very related to your question is, in Baltimore, you have several large really historic black churches i mean been in operation since the middle of the 19th century really amazing places what they have seen though is most of their membership and again we're talking i think in many cases about the black middle class have moved out to the suburbs Mm -hmm. and they come back into the community uh you know into the city they do come back on sundays who and obviously this is a generalization, what I'm about to say, who's not coming to church is actually the people who live in the communities. I mean, what I'm saying now, I've heard from several different faith leaders that our church is 90% commuters, that's the term used, even though it's in the middle of a low-income community. And, And my guess is, and again, just a guess, I'm speculating here, but just as the church doesn't, you know, maybe have the central role it did for organizing, also I think, Similarly, the church used to be a place where basic needs could get met for people who were not able to meet their own needs. And I'm not sure it serves that role anymore. And so for someone who's struggling day to day, paycheck to paycheck or no paycheck at all, um, the significant population that is saying, and by the way, not just black, um, but a different population saying, I don't, what, what do I get from going there? like, I've got other things I need to do to stay alive and that kind of thing. And I don't, the hours I would spend there, I'm not sure how that helps me deal with the many things I'm faced with.
0: So so is the question too focused then? So should we be talking about how to decentralize the church for Americans, period? Or is there some specific urgency when we talk about minority communities?
1: Well, I think because of the organizing principle that, that used to be embedded in the church community, is that it was because I think because of sort of the message and the community building aspect that potentially churches had um, served so that when your needs weren't being met, you can have a conversation and you might be able to sort of begin to organize around what you should expect from your country or as a citizen. And then you might be able to sort of organize from that space. Maybe the church no longer is a a space for that to be um, for you to do that work. Because when you think about the when you think about the challenges of the future, I don't know how churches are raising those questions for their congregation. Cause one the other the other aspect of it is the question of is a church really um too traditional a space now? What do you mean? Um, like is the church asking you is the church challenging you to look at your role as a citizen? Or is the church sort of mining your soul? Those to me used to be, I think more wrapped up together I feel like they've split apart a little bit Mm, you lost me well you know to some degree the idea of a church um really focusing on earthly needs is a little bit of a misnomer right because it's supposed to be taking care of your soul it's supposed to prepare your soul for the next space Right, supposed to be preparing you for
0: the well, but going back to what Jason's saying is that church serves a really practical function for people. That's where they go, yes, the spiritual needs are there alongside mm-hmm. all the other things that people are going there for, like, you know, maybe they have a food pantry, maybe they're yep. teaching people how to read, etc. It's more like it can be a community center for some people. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean it, it does do that thing, but I'm not, I don't know if you can divorce it from everything else that it's doing and hold it up as the thing it's doing. I don't think that's clear even to the congregants that
3: that's why they're going. Well, but I think there's something here. Um, there's something around, I'm going to use the term liberation theology. Mm-hmm. And 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 by the way, I think one of the factors here, and it's hard to know, like it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but I'm just going to go with it for now. One of the things here, it comes back to something that continues to be a challenge, which is some of the most concrete aspirations and goals of the civil rights movement on paper were accomplished. Now, again, we know in okay. practice, many of them weren't. Okay. But, you know, it is, you know, we could talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, as many people have talked about, where, you know, the, the question is very similar to, like, the Occupy Wall Street. Like, what's the demand? I mean, we know the demand is for unarmed black men to stop being killed. But, like, what's the policy change, right? Like, it was, it, you know, Voting Rights Act, Civil Rights Act had some very clear cut, um, you know, asks, policy demands that needed to be needed to be met. And a lot of them, you know, the laws are in place. Uh, of course, we could sit here and come up with lots of legal improvements that could be made. But the it, it's just less, um, it's less concrete right now, like what the asks are. I think there's a struggle as race and equity continues. Um, it's a struggle to pinpoint policies in the way that, you know, when you look at like school segregation in the law, right? Like water, separate water fountains. I mean – the, 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 that level of things being tangible is not there anymore. And it, so it's more diffuse and it, that makes it harder to organize people around when you don't have a concrete ask that is, you know, plain as day that that needs to change. Like we know the outcomes need to change, but policy change is a much, it's it's a much less tangible conversation these days.
1: Now I'm also curious for something like say like immigration, right? Where, people feel like you need a comprehensive immigration platform. I'm curious about what that something like that is looking like in maybe say um, communities of color around who, for whom immigration is their big issue and whether the church or whether any sort of organizing space is serving that role. Cause maybe the question then is about the tension between what are the compelling um, issues for or civil rights issues for, African-Americans in the next century and beyond like what and and I guess my my sense of it is that some of the issues that are of real importance to African-Americans are are so they're they're so entangled with making sure that the laws are being effectively sort of executed that I, I, mm-hmm. and and that it's also including trans rights and it's including um, LGBT rights. So and it just doesn't feel like the church is a, is a welcoming space for those conversations.
0: And you know, that's I've been, for sure. I've been quiet during this conversation because you know that once I start talking, she's gonna be an uninterrupted stream <laughs> of like lot. religious <laughs> like antagonism towards it. You know what I mean? But but here we go. Here we go. But Tricia, to what you said, like, I think in this, in this world, right, where, especially when you talk about minority communities, you talk about Latinos, you talk about uh, African Americans, like, if you get a group of people together, they're going to start talking about what the group of them can do. Like, how can they advance? Like, they're there for their spiritual needs, but they're there for other needs. This isn't necessarily going to lead them down political alleyways. Right? So now they're organizing politically. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, like, if you want to advance as a group, you have to have a progressive mindset. Now, when I think of progressive mindset, I don't think about a group of people organized around a religious purpose. Like, you know, if we left it to religious nuts, we'd, we'd still fucking be like burning torches and burning witches at the stake because science and common sense do not get in there. Do you know what I mean? Um, I don't know if no, you can take my but, bias and opinion, but uh, it's there.
1: I know, but, but, let, but can, we, can we retreat a little bit from that before you go down that road? <laughs> Pull
2: tr- back, pulling yeah, I'm, I'm pulling back you from back.
1: The brink. <laughs> I'm pulling you back from the brink because what I really want you to do is I really want you to think about the MLK tradition because- I mean, he was able to organize people around a progressive agenda because he could yeah, look around no. the universe. He could look around the communities and say, "Listen, these are the our needs are not being met in these ways as and as American citizens, our needs deserve to be met."
0: We and Martin so- Luther King was Martin Luther King Jr. was genius in that he used his role as a preacher, right, and he used uh, certain context and symbols, but he didn't they weren't the cornerstone of any of his famous speeches. He did not appeal to people's spiritual goodness. He appealed to justice. He appealed to what was correct and right, but not in a spiritual sense. He referenced it a couple of times, but it wasn't the mainstay of what he was putting out there. Oh
1: and no, he used the religious tradition wholeheartedly. He used, he used the
0: tradition. The, the and, and he Christian
1: used, religious tradition.
0: Yeah, go on.
1: No, I mean that's that, that's that's sort of the brunt of his story. I mean, the "high of a dream" speech and all of the the kind of like metaphors are mm-hmm. quite religious.
0: They they reference religion, right? As a but, as but a but useful doesn't...
1: metaphor to help people arrive at a place.
0: Exactly, but he didn't he didn't give out a religious imperative for why these changes need to be made. And my whole point there is just that, like it wasn't that he was using religion to move people forward he had a progressive mind frame and he used religion as a tool to motivate that group of people but
1: so, so it wasn't we, a
0: religious movement
1: okay so do you, so 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 i'm um, are 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 we now back to the initial question that maybe religion is not a useful tool no i mean anymore?
0: i don't think it's a useful a tool question. that's not
1: my initial question i don't i mean
0: that's not the initial question i don't think it's a useful t- religion's not a useful tool i'm just going to put that out there as an objective fact but, but what the yeah. question is. Uh, I don't, question, don't agree with that. But I don't well, agree with that at all. Don't agree. But, but the question is <laughs> the question. I mean, the question I really want to ask is that given mm-hmm. the affinity that African Americans have for the church in this time, when our rights as black people are under assault and the church is in some ways, very conservative and continues to be divisive. I just don't think that that can be the agency by which we continue to organize. You brought up the fact that, like, you know, Black Lives Matter means all black lives, right? It means all of us. It means me as a gay man. It means you as a black woman. It means all black people. Now, if the church is going to continue to say, like, oh, black lives matter, but not these black lives or not those black lives, then the question is, who are you actually aligned with here? The, the the other people who don't think that certain Black lives matter, like you don't get to decide which Black lives matter or not. Like if we're going to be a unified movement, we're going to be that. But do you agree or disagree with what I'm saying?
1: Okay, okay. So let me know if this is a tangent, and then um you can rein me back in. Okay. One of the things, uh, so I've I've been helping a friend who's taking a religion class, and um one of the things that's been really interesting is to see how the class attempts to make religion come alive today, right? And and so I started to look at sort of the political landscape and how uh, someone who is sort of entrenched in a religious tradition would look at the current political landscape. And there really is this sense of a kind of spiritual religious warrior ideology that I was getting from my reading, especially because um, she had been Doing the Old Testament, we haven't gotten into the New Testament yet, so I don't know how that's going to shift. But this whole the Old Testament idea that, in some ways, there are sort of chosen people, and you might actually have to be chosen to suffer, and so that you may not be in line with where the mainstream is going. I think about how the right is currently characterized, and there's a real um, there's a real sort of affirmation that comes from being seen as out of step with mainstream. It really fits in with the religious ideology. And I just started thinking to myself, well, that's a real contrast, I feel, to how I had thought about religion's role in the civil rights movement, where it felt like in the past, the civil rights movement, in conjunction with um, sort of religious tradition, would would actually push on society to be more inclusive, to be more, um, to open its institutions, to afford its citizenry sort of their full humanity. Whereas Mm -hmm. right now, I feel like we're having a, a, we're retreating from that because the things that we have defined as kind of inclusiveness is now being sort of characterized as um, antithetical to the things that a Christian, a good Christian would subscribe to. You know, so I just, I feel like the landscape around religious language and metaphor has completely changed, such that religious tradition now is much more about exclus- exclusivity and it's much more about deciding who doesn't belong as opposed to this idea that we were all our Christian brothers, which I felt, I I felt like that was something that was a part of kind of the, the MLK and sort of the civil rights tradition. I just don't see that happening now. And so that's so really where that tension day. for me. I mean, I agree, I, I agree with you, but not in the way that you have characterized it because you sort of are dismissive of religion. What I'm talking about now is that I think that the religious landscape and the metaphor has completely, um, it's become completely insular. It's it doesn't it doesn't allow for openness anymore. It actually allows for this kind of closed what who you are not as opposed to who we are, which I thought the past did. Because think about it, because certain people were subscribed to a religious tradition, they necessarily were compelled to join King's March. They were necessarily compelled. You had Catholics. I mean, everyone felt like they had to listen to this call from God. Right. You had to change society for the better. That's not Mm -hmm. the call that's being hearkened to now.
3: Well, I think that's right. And I mean, something we haven't touched on yet. And again, I don't know how much of a factor this is, but I feel like it's definitely a factor. And this is not exclusive to any particular church, but to churches in general, black churches, white churches. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are a lot of churches that have become very interested in being as big and rich uh, as possible. And there are yep. um, leaders of churches. I mean, this whole concept, which I don't totally get of like, let's make sure our pastor has a plane.
1: Yeah. And the has prosperity a really group, nice yeah. car.
3: Yeah. Prosperity gospel. Like uh, that's, I mean, that's there too. And I, it's hard to even imagine that mindset among the churches. And even, even like in the islamic groups like the 60s and 70s it's just hard to imagine that being the driving force and it seems like today um a lot of churches are organized more around that let's pull our money to make our our church facility look as um, luxurious and to allow our leaders to live as luxuriously as possible so different from like what people were organizing around before
0: religious monarchy being set up, like a papacy yes. sort of thing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and, and, know, like and it's and it's engendered a separation. It's it really has. And and so I, I I guess that's really fundamentally why I think the religion question has to be asked. Not because, oh my God, they're worshiping spirits or they're worshiping like invisible things that we, you know the science doesn't exist. I mean that's always been there. But there's always been an element and a recognition of the role of the especially the african american church as a kind of holder of tradition or like a, a holder of our spirit in some ways and mm-hmm. i i i don't i don't know i mean maybe it's because we don't go um maybe that yeah, maybe that continues to exist but um i don't i don't get that sense i don't get that sense in terms of the role of religion anymore as a kind of participant in public life. And maybe this is just a, maybe this is just a general breakdown of public life and, you know, in all our institutions. Maybe this is, maybe religion is necessarily feeling that. sting. I think
3: there's certainly something there, right? Like civic organizations, community organizations. We see all of those things just kind of dissipating. Like people are so busy and people are staying in their own houses. And, you know, as we've talked about watching their own news feeds um, and you just that kind of or, that organization, you know, using that term broadly, in churches and many other types of associations, you just it's like dissipated. We just don't see it.
0: Mm, I'm just I'm thinking it's going to take us off into a wild tangent into an entirely other topic. So I was just considering, do I even bring this up? But um, to what Jason's saying, like I feel, I think about this too. But I also feel that that's correct. What you're saying. And we are isolating ourselves more. We use the internet to create community amongst disparate people in disparate situations all over the world, which sounds like it might be a good idea, but not really because those communities are anonymous and fleeting. And that's really different than what has been, what the kind of organizations that we've seen that bring people together, be it a religious or a labor organization or something like that. It's people um, boots on the ground um, showing up in person, doing something together. And it's this, you're right. I don't think it's just the church, the black church. Or, I think it's a lot of our civil civic organizations that are just sort of falling by the wayside. But I guess the tangent that I wanted to go down was that, is that lamentable? Is that a bad thing? Like could, because this is kind of, maybe the reason why, the black church or any of these other organizations are failing is because they're just not useful anymore. Maybe we are lamenting over something that should pass. Like nobody mourns the pony express. I mean, it, it's time has passed.
3: Well, I'll, you know, it's, that's very interesting. It's, it's triggering a lot of thoughts in my head. It goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is, maybe it's not worth lamenting but but to me what is worth lamenting is there's not an organizing vehicle like there used to be whether that's the church or not now one other thought that's just popped in my head is that you know i just and again this is a question i don't know if this is what's at work but at the time you know when the black church was so prominent i think a lot of african americans did not have access to you know careers in the way that many do now right? So if people and their day jobs are very um, repetitive and not necessarily, you know, careers of passion, then, you know, where do you go for fulfillment as you can go to experience fulfillment? Not everyone for sure, but a lot more people, a lot more African-Americans than used to be the case, you know, are able to enter jobs that um, this, again, and I don't think it's just a black thing. Like, I feel like for a significant portion of the country, certainly not all significant portion, I think the three of us would fall into this, you know, college educated, like, where do we seek fulfillment? A lot of it's in our careers. And I think there's a time when that just wasn't even an option for a lot of people. You
1: know, this is... <sighs> it's fascinating that we asked this question about, you asked this question about whether this is a Pony Express issue, you know, like, you know, Mm. should we just say it's a bygone era? And, um, you know, many years ago for a history class, we had to read Tocqueville's America. And it's Mm. so funny. It's funny because one of the few things that I remember from that (laughs) is that um, Tocqueville makes a point about the importance of associations and that he thought that, um, that an essential part of a democracy is the need for associations. And he contrasted to aristocratic society. And um, let me just, and I found, I found a little bit of what he was saying and let me just bring it up to you. And he says, you know, in aristocratic societies, men do not need to combine in order to act because they are strongly held together Every wealthy mm. and powerful citizen constitutes the head of a permanent and compulsory association.
3: That is interesting.
1: And among democratic nations, however, on the contrary, all the citizens are independent and feeble. They can they can do hardly anything by themselves, and none of them can ab- oblige his fellow man to lend him their assistance. They all, therefore, become powerless if do, they do not learn voluntarily to help one another.
3: So, Wow, that's I deep. That's Drop like Trisha. I know. I just
0: decided that Trisha's getting the last word on this topic because Jason, neither of us can.
3: <laughs> no. Trisha, However, us I love how it's took, though. I, I guy, know, right? This guy comes over here for like two days and just like analyzes the whole society. He's basically, and like we're t- all like confused.
0: He's what basically a tourist, and then he you writes know, what, like a TripAdvisor
2: <laughs> review. Yeah. He publishes it.
1: But I think one of, but one of the things that I think he, I remember looking at it and and having him key in on this thing that Americans did without understanding that it was valuable. And it is getting together that because everyone in some sense is so free and is an individual, you, you're left to kind of go, I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever I want, but everything falls apart. If you can do anything you want as on your own.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, well, you know what I mean? You yeah, have to no, come together on a common
3: purpose I, it's, it's so interesting you're saying that I think, I mean we're in a moment in our country where the, I'm going to use the term fetish
2: mm-hmm. of
3: individual liberty as a concept
2: yep. is mm-hmm. so
3: strong and driving so many people's actions and, and decisions and look, I'm, I'm all for freedom um, but the privileging of individual and individualistic liberty over collective action, yes. relationship building, coordination. Wow. Um, I, I see how people, like there's this, there's just this kind of, and I, this is another thing that I think is at play with the church question that I was trying to figure out how to articulate. Like, and I've said this before, like there's this like, anti authoritarian moment that we're in and that leads to like I want to make sure I can do and say whatever I want and not have to worry about the consequences. Yep. And I, I I can totally I don't maybe not totally I can understand where that comes from and yet it has costs. And the yes. trade off is is exactly what we're talking about. Being organized, being in relationship, doing things together. Um, and that's a real cost. Like because just as he, Tocqueville said, like your feeble was an individual in a democracy, you just are. I mean, you are in a dictatorship too, unless you're the dictator. But uh, yeah, that's that's uh, just so interesting. But
1: you know? if in a, but yeah. in an aristocratic society where you have titles and land, you know what I mean, like that. If you're if things. you're in that class, if you're in that class, <laughs> yeah, right? But I mean, but if but but the power you have to execute action is. Is in that class, right?
3: But yeah. That's right. That's The right.
1: American yep. citizen, your power lies in you getting together, right? And yeah. we have actually created structures and things that pull us further and further apart. And funny enough, a church used to be a space where we you get together weekly, you know, y- you and know, necessarily things would come from that.
3: Yeah, and you you know you brought up Tocqueville. I'm going to bring up someone else from the last century. It's Peter Drucker. I don't know if you've read his stuff, but, you know, he had this analysis and it evolved over time. You know, he originally kind of mapped out that a society, you have like this kind of private sector of businesses and commerce, and then you have the government sector. And then he realized that it was missing a significant component. I don't don't remember what he called it, but it's like this, what we're talking about, like this kind of civic sector, this nonprofits, churches, Mm -hmm. um, associations. And, you know, his argument was a healthy democracy these three are kind of equally strong, mm. and as I think about that we 're in a moment where, as we 've been saying, that that civic you know nonprofit community part has weakened so much, and what we find ourselves in, I think, is just this tug of war uh, mm-hmm. that 's probably the wrong metaphor is is the business sector having gotten so strong
2: mm-hmm. and
3: influencing so strongly that government sector without that kind of nonprofit civic set uh sector to i mean that's what you see in the 60s is you see this you know the churches and nonprofits um exerting power right like and yeah. and and you know just as business can influence government i mean when when you have a sit in at a woolworths um uh dining you know counter to desegregate it that's that that civic sector uh Pushing on the business sector to then push on the government sector, and yeah. that kind of mm-hmm. dynamic that triangulation, like we are so missing that right now,
0: yeah, yeah um let's leave that there. that was mm-hmm. really great
3: that was a great conversation i you, uh,
0: you two I just stayed quiet at the end because you two were firing on all cylinders <laughs> and. I'm a smart guy, but I'm just you know, I could not compete with what you guys just pulled
3: out. Oh, that that's very quick. sweet. You orchestrated it all, Chris. You you get the credit. Well,
0: I I do pull all these. What
3: your are we shit, at? 80%, but... 10% Is that <laughs> one. No, no, I still get 90% of the profits. You guys, 90. So- oh, it's 90. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh,
0: so <laughs> we're gonna move on. We're gonna do something a little bit different this episode. Um so it's finally come to pass after months and months and months, and it feels like years, um, this past weekend, we finally say goodbye <laughs> to our 44th president, Barack Hussein Obama. And um, I thought, well, in the, coming, in the coming months and years, pundits and historians are going to meticulously and savagely pull apart every aspect of his legacy and presidency to prove that he was either the best leader we ever had or the worst. Um, there's, You can comment on so much stuff that's happened between the Affordable Care Act and the stimulus and the, the war and all of it. And I just figured if we leave the analysis to them, right? Because they can do it much better than we can just casually reclining as we are tonight. Um, I just wanted to, if we could focus on what we're gonna remember about the Obama presidency, like each of us individually. Uh, and what about the last eight years has seemed special for us? So, Jason, why don't you go first? Uh,
3: I I have so many feelings around this. I, I think it's. I'm going to use a concept that Trisha uses so often. Like I think you, we have to look at this in context. And I'm also a data person, right? So if we look at the data, I think there are a lot of indicators that say that. President Obama was a very effective president. If we look at the country, the state it was in uh, by the numbers when he became president and the state it's in now, um, I think it's really extraordinary in terms of the economy, in terms of jobs, in terms of disparities, in terms of um, the rights of certain citizens, in terms of people having health care, um, And then, so that's, like on the policy data side, which is really important to me. Then I think there's also the case and it maybe I I hesitate to say this because it sounds like we maybe have a low bar, but Mm -hmm. the fact that, I mean, there were no scandals we have, you know, president Obama, incredibly intelligent, articulate, um, connect emotionally, but also speak dispassionately when that needs to be done. We see that so rarely, in our presidents and in, in public life in this country. Um, and that is something, you know, I started missing the second that the campaign started, you know, in, in uh, 2016. So, and the last thing I'll say is just thinking about all of that in the context of a dynamic in Congress where Congress was unwilling to do almost anything at an unprecedented level, a context in which there was such polarization among different factions. The fact that he was as effective as he was, which I think the numbers support in that context, uh, and the fact that he was able to be this level headed, very analytical, intelligent, but still emotionally connected leader in that context, I think is extraordinary. I feel incredibly blessed to have been an adult could appreciate all that while he was president. Trish.
1: So um, I've been thinking about this. I, uh, a couple of years ago I started a blog <laughs> about, um, with the intention that I was going to start traveling and writing. And I actually uh, wrote about Barack Obama's presidency in 2008 when he was first elected. But <laughs> before I did that, i i wrote (laughs) i wrote two pieces and then i really didn't write about its presidency after that but the first piece was making peace with the election this was before the actual election day because i had been so stressed and one of the things i said i i I remarked on in the blog post was that i was really guilty of thinking that if palin and mccain won the election all hope was lost that's what Mm -hmm. i said. and it had the election, the 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 election period or election cycle had really sort of taken my equilibrium. Like I I was on pins on needles. It felt like that election was kind of like a referendum on um, possibilities for African Americans. That's what mm-hmm. that election had started to represent for me. So I I couldn't I could not turn it off. I mean it it was really the first election that I cared passionately about, and I was um and I. I I wasn't that I wasn't that young, you know, so there had been cycles of other presidents before. But for some reason, I understood that the election of Barack Obama meant something beyond choosing a president. It was it was a referendum on what's possible for Americans. And then after he was elected, I wrote that um I wrote this thing. I said, I listened to all the talk about an African-American becoming president. All things are now possible. We have overcome the dream is still alive. And finally a more perfect union. I said, until I watched Barack's speech, I could not tell you that it would have been the transfer. I did not understood that, understand that it was transformational even to myself then. Like as angsty as I had been before and then watching him, something did shift in me psychically when Barack Obama became president. And so this is like taking a different, a different stance entirely, regardless of even what the numbers said. And I've been listening to the pros and cons of his, um, you know, his presidency and the things that he failed to do and the things that he did succeed in. There was a real psychic shift in me. And I felt in many people um, about a sort of possibility. And so in some ways, I think the most important thing about Barack Obama for me is, some, is somewhat symbolic, to be honest. Um, it's like the stories you tell your kids when they're growing up, you know, and even though they somehow figure out that maybe they're sorry, there isn't a Santa Claus or there there isn't a tooth fairy those stories serve a purpose, right? There's a kind of grounding. I don't know what it is that, that those stories are really doing, but there's some psychic-like um, coverage or something that's happening. And somehow or another, I felt like Barack Obama's presidential run was a story for me um, that was transformational internally. And ironically enough, <laughs> it was important enough, I think, that I think it's almost shored me up for whatever is coming next. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think that to me, that's, that's also, it's like I looked on the other side of something. And now when I look towards what might be possible, I can almost say, Hey, we got to this place. We did this thing. Mm -hmm. It, It is possible. There is something that's possible. There is another way that we could do this. And that vision I feel like I'm really holding to that vision now. Somewhat more than ever. That's 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 kind of how I've been really coming to terms with Barack Obama's presidency. Emotionally, mm-hmm. mentally, philosophically.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's the journey I've been on with it. That's where I'm at today, wow. at least. <laughs>
0: Gosh, you know, I struggled to think about what I wanted to talk about during this segment because there's like three things.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I was just going to hit on all three of them really quickly. Sure. and it, like Most of it is like saying what you're saying, Trisha, maybe in less words and maybe a little less eloquently. But I remember watching the election results uh, eight years ago when it was coming in. And I just remember my feeling uh, watching it roll in and then the sudden realization that the West coast was going to go blue and that Barack Obama was going to be president uh, to this day. I marvel at the feeling that I had, like as I completely broke down weeping on my living room floor, gasping, like I just, <laughs> it was just sort of this recognition that um, this, this thing has happened that I just did not believe was going to be possible. I just didn't believe it was possible for people who look like me to be the president, and I certainly didn't believe that this country that has been so antagonistic to people who look like me would vote would go out and vote um for him and so th- that was that was monumental, and I'll never forget that night for the rest of my life. Um, the other thing is, you know on the flip side of that. I think the antagonism that Congress showed over the past eight years, I think just the hatefulness of the people who came out just refusing to do their jobs, the whole rise of the tea party then <laughs> reminded me exactly what the country is about and has always been about. And it's really shifted and guided my thinking in about how to resist and overcome that, uh, You know, in some ways, I think Obama's presidency made us complacent about, like, things are progressing. Like, see, I told you slavery was a long time ago. And, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. Like, affirmative action took you all the way to the White House. Now there's nothing left to complain. So there's, like, one side, the complacency, but also the reaction to his presidency reminded me that there's so much more work to do and that this country is based on a racist racist form of capitalism as if there's any other kind um, that we really have to work hard to defeat. Um, And the last thing I'm going to say, which I'm most thankful to Barack Obama for is um, as a black person, I find that I felt really validated by his presidency, but also as a, as a gay person, the um, what his administration has done for LGBTQ Americans from signing hate crime legislation to repealing don't ask, don't tell to ending. um All I can say is that if you live anywhere long enough and people tell you don't belong, when someone comes along, someone with all the power says, no, you absolutely belong. It's a really powerful feeling. Um, And I think that's what I'm going to remember is that for the past eight years, I felt empowered in a way that I would not have dreamed would have been possible for someone like me. So so there it is. That's beautiful. I, I can't say that it's because of Barack Obama that all the good things that have come in my life in the eight years have happened. But I can tell you that the confidence that I've had and the ability to walk into places and not assume that they were going to say no, um, it, it has its roots in in um, in his presidency and the fact that I can look up in any post office <laughs> or any school and see a picture of a president who looks like me and affirms someone like me. Um, so yeah, that's what I'll miss. Well, um, farewell to Barack Obama, and uh, whatever he does next, I'm going to be a big fan of it. And I really am. I think he's, I think he's a great American. Honestly,
1: I yeah. Regardless of whether you agreed with his presidency or yeah. not, I think you can say that yeah, that he was a good person. Yeah, and he was a great American citizen.
0: Yeah, he definitely, he definitely moved us forward. And and we should. I mean, going into this, the next four years, I think we should just carry a little bit of that with us. With what's possible, what's 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 possible in America. I mean we we've seen we've seen what hope can do. Um, we've seen the backlash to that, um, and I think we just shouldn't forget that. You know, hope won, right?
1: Well, hope he called won. to the best hope in us, and I yeah. think yeah. that yes. was. Um, and I think, but you know, there's always been that tension. I think there's always a tension Mm -hmm. of which part of you are you going to respond to every day. And I think in 2008 and 2012, Americans responded to the, their highest vision of themselves. Mm -hmm. I really do. But that's something that you have to renew every day. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) It doesn't stay with you all the time. So
0: let's, Let's uh, move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, or read. You think other people should see, hear, and read. And then we have a special announcement. Uh, who wants to go first? Their media recommendation? I have one, but I, I, I'm going to go first. I go think we might have already. I think
1: Trisha might have already recommended this. Well, you can double recommend. That means it was. So I guess much. that just means it's
0: super good. So <laughs> I recently started watching on Netflix the the series Chewing Gum. Oh, yeah. Which, did you recommend this already?
1: Yeah. I don't think you did. I don't remember I that. might have, I, you know what? I might have just talked to you about it. I might not have recommended it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Chewing Gum is a <laughs> comedy. It's a British
0: comedy about this, um, I don't know. She's like a 22-year-old black girl who lives in the council houses in some working class part of uh, London. And I love her because like we were talking about Insecure a couple of weeks ago, she's just kind of like this silly, not really powerful girl who's constantly getting it wrong. And it's hilarious. And the show's really well written. Um, it's it's racy, so you can't, as I discovered, you can't watch it on the train, on your nope. phone, because people will look over your shoulder and be like, excuse me, you know, it, is that a blowjob, you know? But like, it's really really very funny and the 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 woman who stars in it who whose name i forget and i really should have looked up before i started talking about it i think it's michaela michaela i don't want is it it's michaela cole yeah i don't want to guess yeah it's michaela first of all she's got a look that's just for tv all of her features are too big yeah so when she smiles or her face light, it's like she's an animated person and she wrote the she wrote the series and she stars in it it's wonderful. I, I can't talk about it enough. Please, 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 please go see it. And it reminds me, Tricia, of something that you said to me a long time ago when the new girl came on TV. You were like, there is no real archetype for a silly black girl who is just sort of like, you know, flitting around from point A to point B, is because she's always going to come across as like mentally ill because it's yeah. just not the idea <laughs> That's we <exactly>. have. Remember <laughs> you said that? Because yeah. it's just not the idea we have about black women. But here is this character who she's young, she's silly, she's uninformed, and she she's she's a normal person. You know, I just think I mean, especially with um, Issa Rae in, in Insecure, I'm really pleased to see like this new. Not even new. I'm mean, this this regular black woman on TV. It's just very funny. I'm glad that black women can move into this comedic space without having to worry about being someone's queen or someone's war queen or some <laughs> judge.
3: Like it's okay. I'll go. Um, I recently saw the movie Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Oh, I heard um, about that. that was a yeah, ago, I, right? yeah, it's Tina Fey uh, stars in it and. You know, I had heard of it. Um, it sounded, you know, maybe interesting, but it's just like over the weekend, like, why not watch it? And uh, it's one of these movies, I have to say throughout the movie, it's going back and forth, just thinking like, do I like this movie? I'm not sure. You know, it's interesting because it is, it's definitely got a lot of comedic money to it, but there are parts that are very dramatic. Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of romance and there's some action. And it's just like, has a lot of, it's hard to, um, it's hard to classify it as a particular genre. Um, but it's one of those movies where I wasn't sure how much I was liking it. By the time it ended, I, I was like, wow, I think I really liked it. And then I just kept thinking about the movie. So I definitely recommend it. Now the one critique I'll give, which not surprising, we've talked about this many times, but even though there are main characters in it who are Afghan, uh, they're not played by Afghan oh, yeah. uh, actors. And that was, that's just annoying. It just seemed like, why, why couldn't you hire a couple of Afghan a- actors for this? Like, yeah. Anyway, but Other I remember that I remember
0: hearing something around. I remember hearing Tina Fey like completely twist herself in pretzels, pretzel knots, to try and like explain that. And I was like, just, just stop, just stop. <laughs> she's, like, she's like, well, when you think about it, they are Caucasian. So when we class Caucasian people, we figured, well, oh, we're not really being like. And I was like, just stop it.
2: No, no and in
3: in the You're in the film. In, you know, she plays a, you know, a white American, uh, reporter, um, television reporter. And, you know, part of, part of one of the central things about the film is that she forms like a really, um, strong, but complex ship with, uh, her Afghan translator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the relationship because of the differences in culture and the, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan, with the war, the relationship is just fascinating. And like, you know i'm just like wow like they you know they use an american actor and put like a big thick fake beard on him i think um (laughs) why why not use an afghan actor like this this why not but anyway but i I still think it's worth watching
0: did she write it she didn't write it Did She she produced it well what does that mean she signed a check
3: (laughs) <laughs> might i mean i think that 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 word gets used in many different ways i don't know what it yeah. is. Um, i mean she was but, i mean she does deserve kudos i mean she, she was fantastic in that movie and it was not an easy part she was really amazing and i think in addition to being very funny which she you know she certainly can be i mm-hmm. thought the dramatic moments she did very well too
1: so I um I had a movie day and uh, with some friends and it was great actually uh, we watched four movies in succession um, but three of them I'd already seen and many of I re- I've recommended but the new one I saw it wasn't great but I thought it was um I thought it's worthy of watching uh, is Lion with Dev Never Patel yeah Dev Patel it's a movie um it's a movie about a five year old um Indian boy who gets lost on a train which takes him um, thousands of miles away um, uh, to uh, a city in to, to Calcutta. You know, he and his brother are going off to work and his brother's trying to get a job. And the brother leaves him on a train station and the kid wanders onto a train and the train just keeps going for Jesus. miles and miles and miles. Um, and he is basically then becomes a part of the street kids in Calcutta. Mm-hmm. And then he's um, a, um, adopted by an Australian couple. Uh, and um he lives in australia for several, for 20 something years and he just cannot get the image of his brother out of his mind he can't sleep so he go he uses google earth maps to try to find his home because he has no he's a 5 year old so he has no memory of exactly the name of the city mm-hmm. so um it's his search for his family and it's based on a true story um oh, wow. the first thing about it that's compelling is um, on a completely superficial level. Dev Patel looks hot
3: the entire time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like a Chris recommendation. I know. How dare you?
2: How dare you, Jason? I mean,
1: I want you to look up "Line" as a movie and just see how beautiful oh. Dev Patel looks. Dev
0: Patel's hot. I mean, he is.
1: And he was hot with short hair and with long hair. It's He's just out, hot. Move out of the way, Brad Pitt. And so that was oh really God. good. Brad but Pitt. Then, I know, back in the day, you know, ain't, Legends of the yeah, Fall, right?
0: Like 90s, yeah. Yes,
1: Legends of the Fall. Probabil- but you know, it there was something really um really touching about the story. Um it, I think it's going to be really disturbing the the street kid stuff, but I don't know. I really liked it. Um it's kind of like a normal natural movie, just a little bit no no, no major boo hoo or anything about it. Just a, a good movie with brown people in it. It's good. Um yeah, enjoyable. So I, I recommend that. I'm not going heavy. That was that was really good. Just okay. for some, eye, some Dev Patel eye candy.
3: Not a bad.
0: Thing. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Nicole, your me recommendation. Your me recommendation is downloading pictures of just, Dev Patel. Just look guys. at yeah, Dev Patel. You, you, you could do
3: that, but you, you know, recommend you, that people
1: just look at Dev. Patel. I know. Dev, just look at Dev Patel, but you can't look at. You have to look at him in this movie because he's shot nicely. <laughs> you know who's also in it, but I completely. You know, it's not really important. Is um, Nicole Kidman's in it too? <laughs> oh. So anyway, moving on. Um <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> no, I like her. Mm-hmm. Um okay, so we actually have a special announcement. Uh there is going to be a change in the podcast and Jason, I'm going to let you take it away. Oh, so sad.
3: I feel like oh, we've had a lot of sad moments t- tonight. Know. Uh. Well, a lot of things are ending. So the news is that I am uh, taking on a new job, and that job is serving as senior White House advisor on education in the United States government. Um, and that, uh, that job means that I'm going to have certain constraints on what I can say publicly um, about certain topics, uh, which include topics that we talk about a lot on this podcast. So very sad to report that i will not be able to do this podcast as long as i'm in that role i hope you two will have me back uh whenever i'm not in that role uh anymore and um you know this this podcast started with Trisha saying you know you you said you missed the conversations we used to have and it's been like so fun to have these conversations and uh i sure hope we can find a way uh you two will carry on but i sure hope we can find a way uh, that I could be a part of some of the conversations, even if they're not uh, podcast. Uh, <laughs> you know, across uh, lots I mean, of people. You mean
0: you want to keep talking to us socially? Yeah, yes. I'd <laughs> like to talk
3: to you. There <laughs> and there.
1: Will you still talk to me? I think we can manage that, Jason.
3: <laughs> I appreciate that.
1: I um, mean, there can always be a moment where, if you have a topic you would like to sit down and chit chat with us, we'll have you on for a segment.
3: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: You know what I mean? I think that yeah. I think
3: there's room for that. I, I maybe I could be think... like the music critic of outrageous, <laughs> <laughs> or
2: the cultural um, critic. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I want to. I want to say that um, you know a lot of people don't know like the origin of this podcast is that Trisha said to me like what eight nine years ago or maybe even longer. Trisha was like, you know, you, me, and Jason should like just like talk about topics and like record it. And I was like, please never going to happen. I don't want to do it. Jason's not going to want to do it either. (laughs) And then the the idea came up again, like two years ago. And I was just talking to Jason and I was like, you know, Trisha has this wild idea. She's had it for years. And I, I, I said, this is what she wants to do. And the next two words out of Jason's mouth, I'm in. That was, that was how outrageous was born. And uh it's before there loved was I didn't
2: love before it. there
1: was such a thing as podcasting before you know? right. the platform actually arrived, so yeah. it, so interestingly enough, ideas started out first, <laughs> yeah it's I
0: mean, I think you might have had that idea. Seriously, Trisha, it might have been just when you moved to LA. When was that? You've been there for over ten years now.
1: Nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, we've been then. there for over
0: ten. years. She's been there. Years. Yeah, in it's and out. out. A, oh, but yeah,
3: we are so old.
0: Oh I my know. God. It <laughs> shortly, it was shortly
3: after you moved to LA. It was like, like in two, my three head. Years. Trisha was like lived in New York until three years ago. Like
1: I know. <laughs> that... <laughs> <laughs> you know what? In my head too, but realistically, no. it was oh ago.
2: That's I so left. Crazy. I, I left.
1: But you know what? Funny enough, I've I've been to. New I mean, a bit wait, wait. Twice.
0: wait, 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 wait. Oh, yeah. I was going to say you were in New York for a period. You came
1: back but, and you went back. But, you know, I came back. But Jason's right, though. I left New York in 2005 yeah so it's, yeah, it
0: has that was raised
1: years ago. It is ten years ago that I left
0: so that's when you that's when you had the idea. You had this idea in about two thousand and six, and then it took us eight years to actually <laughs> for the technology to get there and for for me to get comfortable with the idea. But you know what I have to say, going back to something I said earlier, you know in the last few years, I've said yes to a lot of things mm-hmm. that I would not have said yes to in the past. You know, I, I said yes to this podcast, I said yes to starting a business with my friend. And I, it just cocaine. I've said yes to cocaine, (laughs) I've said yes to smoking indoors. Um, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding about that. No one's doing that, but um, but I'm really glad I said yes to this because this has been so great and people listening I hope that you've enjoyed us in this format uh, J- Trisha and I are going to soldier on and figure out what to do it might take a little time for us to find out what the format's going to be but we're going to figure it out and so
3: if you two have people vote on who the third person will be will you have it one person one vote or you're going to assign oh votes? my god
0: <laughs> you know Jason in this last episode <laughs>
3: Now that we've said one
1: person, one vote, just like you wanted it. I'm not certain.
0: I'm down with that. Here
3: we go. Here we go. Here we We go. We need to be cautious.
0: We don't want just our listeners in cities picking who the third person is going to
3: be. We need to give (laughs) listeners in Idaho and Nebraska a voice. Yeah, we have a lot of those. Yeah, the the Idaho listeners. We we are
1: thinking of doing a view like recasting (laughs) of Jason. Yeah. temporarily so
0: yeah which means that we'll we maybe we'll bring you on so hey, we'll if be you're be adding friends right now, <laughs> yeah if you have if you have opinions and <laughs> you can shout them over trish and i's opinion we'd like to talk to you on the podcast uh but you know jason uh i want to say it's been wonderful and i Thank hope you, you too i hope you both kick ass and give them hell at your new job and uh you know i intend to
1: get some Fight kids th- some education please please
3: <laughs> that's, that's that's my intention
0: <laughs> please all right and on that note i guess the three of us <laughs> for the last time for right now
3: mm-hmm. are gonna say goodbye Say la vie
0: so say la vie I know. Yeah,
3: the wrong French
2: word. I know. <laughs> that's exactly right. In any
0: case, goodbye everybody. Bye. bye.